What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. I feel like, so I have just recently published our episode on Revenge of the Sith, then I did the Wheel of Cause episode on Misery. We have recorded the next Wheel of Ka on Mr. Mercedes. And now I'm back with another Midnight Myth episode. I feel like I am a podcaster again. Yeah, this really feels like a breath of fresh new air into our podcasting souls. I could not be more excited. I could not be more thrilled. I could not be more happy. And we are going to continue talking about Star Wars. I know we've been doing a lot of Star Wars recently. This whole thing started with our Ahsoka episode. We did the prequels. At the end of our Star Wars prequel episode, there were some things that I wanted to specifically say that we didn't get to, just cut for time. And Laurel and I were discussing how do we want to bring this to the Midnight Myth feed. And we decided to do a Midnight Myth meditation. I'm going to do my best Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal with the Jedi? I'm so glad you did that. And I hope our listeners are glad too. No, this is great because like you said, we ran out of time to discuss some of the things that you wanted to bring the table in Revenge of the Sith, but it also has such broad applications for Star Wars writ large that I thought, number one, it was just really important for us to give you the space and the platform to talk about this thing you had researched. But also I think it had more relevance to the full breadth of Star Wars. And we have we've spoken about Star Wars so much. It's such a foundational story for us as the Midnight Myth that like we had to give this a little bit of breathing room. I love it. So I am really, really excited. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and really figure out what's the deal with the Jedi. There's a lot of things that I want to talk about, a lot of thoughts that I can get to. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. Please hit us up if you want to say hi, if you want to ask a question, if you have an idea for something we could do on the podcast in the future. There's a few ways to get in touch with us right now. The best way to do that is to head to our website, midnightmyth.com, and drop us a line in the contact form there. 
You can also hit us up on the app formerly known as Twitter, but we're not checking that as religiously as we used to. I have a major update. Yeah, you're back. Guess who's back? Back, back again. again. I am back on Twitter, baby. You can hit me up at Derek Jones 198. No, what is it? Derek C. Jones 198. Nope, it's Derek Jones. Derek 198. Jones 198 at Twitter. I am back. I am on it. I am active. I am a worse human being for it, but I realize that I want to be out there. If I'm going to podcast, I want my Twitter to be out there. So anyone that wants to dialogue with me can. Listen, you have been making so many amazing wellness choices in your life lately. Like you're working out, you're eating healthy. You had to introduce a little bit more toxicity into your life to balance things out. Absolutely. That's well, the rationale. Absolutely. I, I can't get too well. You can't there, be too healthy. Yeah. I need something making me feel like crap. And if it's not my <laughs> diet choices, it'll be my social media platforms. Yeah. Well, don't worry. Instagram makes you feel bad too. So we're on Twitter at the Midnight Myth on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We just might not check that as religiously as the uh, contact form email. So check us out on the website. Listen to the newest episode of The Wheel of Ka and stay tuned for the next episode on Misery and Mr. Mercedes, respectively. Those are in the Midnight Myth feed as bonuses, and you can also subscribe on the separate Wheel of Ka feed if you want to just listen to those in order, make your playlists, and enjoy a little Stephen King's extravaganza. And then meanwhile, I am getting ready to drop season four, the premiere of season four of Sleep and Sorcery, so that is coming on Tuesday, February 27th, and I'll be publishing weekly after that. So that will be all new original sleep stories inspired by folklore, fantasy, and mythology. So I would love to see you there. I would love to serenade you on your way to sleep. Love that. So let's talk all things Jedi. There's no real recap. We all know who the Jedi are. They are the quasi-military religious order who are the guardians and custodians of the Republic they practice and meditate and use the force to gain special abilities, commanding the lightsaber, telekinesis, low levels of uh, mind control, especially for the weak-minded. And they are the heroes of the Star Wars universe. In the original trilogy, there are no more Jedi. Luke Skywalker discovers his father was a Jedi, follows in his footsteps, and becomes the next Jedi. In the prequels, the Jedi Order is the dominant order of the New Republic, and it's the story of their downfall at the hands of Anakin Skywalker, who would become Darth Vader. Then in the sequel trilogy, the Jedi Order was reinvigorated by Luke Skywalker, only for his nephew Ben Solo to be corrupted by Snook and becomes the Knights of Ren, and the First Order is reborn out of the ashes of the Empire, and they slaughter all of Luke's Jedi, and Luke goes into hiding until Rey starts to reignite the Jedi Order. We've spent a lot of time with the Jedi in the movies. That I say they're the heroes. There are countless comic books, books, um, video games, all about the Jedi, some in the extended universe that is now non-canon, some that are still considered quote-unquote canon, and here we are discussing who the Jedi are and what we can learn from the Jedi. And I do have some historical parallels. The one thing I just kind of want to kick off, and let's focus our conversation around the movies. 
one, that's where Laurel and I are the most comfortable. That's where we're the most fluent. I have not read all of the additional materials. I haven't played all of the video games. So there could be things in those, um, those properties that might illuminate this discussion. And if we don't know about it, hit find us on social media and tell us what you think. Tell us what we're missing and convince me to buy a, a Star Wars comic book or book or video game. I'd be happy to do that and have a reason to do that. That being stated, spend a lot of time with Jedi in one degree or another. Laurel, why do they always seem to lose? Oh, wow. What a great question. The, the failures of the Jedi, I think, are written all over the franchise in many ways, but there is so much built into the kind of fabric of knighthood in general that we have talked about, I think, pretty much at length, not only in regards to the Jedi and Star Wars, but anytime we've discussed medieval literature, anytime we've discussed anything adjacent to chivalry or romance or medieval knighthood, and those parallels run through the Jedi as well, for me, it fundamentally comes down to the kind of gross incongruity between the expectation of an order of people to be both knightly warrior class and also priesthood. Those things in reality and in politics and in political spaces with real people and real characters and real emotions very rarely are sustainable orders. There are power dynamics at play that tend to shift things out of balance, and the Force, of course, as the ultimate tool or ultimate driver of the Jedi, is all about balance. And so when someone gets too much power over it, or someone gatekeeps it, or someone claims to be the, the steward of it, you're kind of bound to barrel towards deep imbalance. Does that make sense? I think it does. I think it makes perfect sense. Because if you think about where we see the Jedi in the movies and all the things that happen in between, we start with the Jedi Order gone in A New Hope and Luke is supposed to bring it back. By the end, that's the hope, which he utterly fails at and ends up creating the conditions for the First Order. Then we have the prequels, which is the fall of the Jedi. It's the story of the Jedi's downfall so that the Empire rules and reigns supreme with no Jedi order to check it, and the dark side controls the galaxy. We don't know where Rey's story is going to go. There are rumors that there is a Rey movie in development about her building the new Jedi order. Hopefully, Rey will be the, the person that gets it right, but it seems that the, the inevitability of the Jedi is their downfall. It seems to be one of their major... Um, characteristics, and I think that drives the narrative because if the Jedi are just maintaining peace and security in the galaxy, there's no conflict, there's no story, so you have to have challenge, challenges to the Jedi narratively for the stories to make sense, but they're constantly in the position of being gone, wiped out on the verge of the dark side, just holding ultimate sway over the galaxy. And I think there is a conflict in there between priest and knight. 
And that is something that has existed in our own history, especially in Western history, that I think is worth talking about. We all know that, well, maybe you do not know, listener, but George Lucas really did want to base the Jedi around samurais. So there's a lot of Western influence, I'm sorry, Eastern influence, Japanese influence in how the Jedi are formed. So this might be counter to what George Lucas wanted, but I look at the Jedi Order and I look at the story of the prequels and it reminds me of the Knights of the Temple, or you may better know them as the Templars. The Templars were a religious military organization. They were integrated into the government of the medieval world and of the crusading world. And they ultimately came to fall very swiftly and very suddenly and very violently. And so I thought it would be interesting to maybe discuss with you the Templars, who were they and uh, how did they downfall and then apply that back to the Jedi and see if that can teach us anything about your first point, that there is a tension and a conflict between knighthood and priesthood. Yeah, how can you be a shepherd of a religion, a peacekeeper, and one who wields violence all in one? How can that possibly work? And maybe that is the inherent fatal flaw of the Jedi and why they always seem to be the architects of their own destruction. So who were the Templars? Why did they fall? It's a very complicated and very large subject. I've read a little bit about it. There's a great book by a great historian. Who's Dan Jones. Dan Jones, thank you very much, that I highly recommend. Very easy read. I also read it. And it's about the Templars, so definitely recommend reading and checking that out. There's a lot of conspiracy theories around the Templars, and this was really uh, put into pop culture hyperdrive by the Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown, who the Knights of the Templars were the guardians of a great conspiracy, and the reason that they fell was because they were the guardians of this great conspiracy. In case you have not seen or read the Da Vinci Code, I won't tell what that is, because it's a major spoiler, but the reality is always one way more interesting to me than the fiction, and two, we're not going to delve into any of the conspiracy theories about the Templars out there. Um, there are many, they are vast, and they are all fundamentally ahistorical, and I'm the history guy, so sorry folks, no conspiracy theories here. And yet, the always accurate History Channel has many, many specials you can delve into if you want to get mystical, creepy, and occult with the Knights Templar. Yeah, no judgment, do you, but that's not a historical view. So, who were the Templars? It's the Middle Ages, and the First Crusade has occurred, and there are what are now known as Crusader states, Jerusalem, Antioch, etc. These are now principalities, kingdoms, run by medieval Western Europeans, largely French people or Franks, and they now hold sway over large swaths of the Middle East. The First Crusade was successful, the Crusaders ended up carving out this portion of the Middle East and were trying to build a Western Christian, what we now call the Crusader states. This meant a large influx of people were doing what? Going on pilgrimage to these states so they could see all of these ancient holy sites. They could see the sepulcher of the cross. They could see, you know, etc. If it's from the Bible in the Middle East, 
the Crusader states now said, come and see. But there's a issue if you're going on a pilgrimage. Unless you are very wealthy and very connected, you're not armed, and you probably don't have private security going with you, and you're probably walking. So you have all of these pilgrims who are walking from Europe to the Middle East. That's a monumental undertaking, and most of the time, whatever possessions they have, they're taking with them. Now, there are laws about not hurting pilgrims in the Crusader states, as well as in Western Europe, but there's a lot of territory in between where there are no such laws. And we all know, even if there's a law saying you can't attack the pilgrims, if they're in the middle of nowhere and you're a bandit and there's no one to stop you, you might still attack the pilgrims. So this led to a, a bunch of retired knights deciding pilgrims are being attacked. It's not, it's a big problem. We are going to defend the pilgrims. We're going to guard them on their pilgrimage from Western Europe to the Crusader states. These knights became known as Knights of the Temple because they made a major um, headquarters and residence in Jerusalem in a temple. So they were the knights of that temple, and then it became the Templars. From these very humble origins, a lot of things happened. One, more and more knights ended up joining the Templars. Imagine you're the, the third or fourth son of a wealthy duke or prince or whatnot, and you're never going to inherit anything. Well, you could join the Knights of the Temple, and then from there you could make a name for yourself. They became known to be some of the most fiercest and some of the most respected warriors in the world. They were very militarized, and they were known for being incredibly skilled at combat. There are many battles where the tide was swung because of the Templars. There are many battles where the Templars were in what's called the vanguard or in the very front lines, and they would end up marching with princes and other military people on escapades. Oftentimes, they were advisors about strategy, so they're in the war room saying, no, 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 don't attack here. You'll die. You attack here. And other things that happened as they grew in power and prominence, they became one of the first international banks. Interesting, right? How did that happen? Well, you're in France, and you're going to make a trip to the Crusader states, to the Holy Land, and you'll give the Order of the Templars in Paris a whole bunch of your possessions. They will hold on to it, and then when you get to Jerusalem, you'll withdraw it from the Templars there. So they ended up holding large amounts of wealth in the form of lending and holding possessions, goods, and money for pilgrims, kings, etc. Also, as some wealthy uh, aristocrats would die, and if they had no heirs, they might give it to the Knights of the Templar. Lots of retired generals, lots of uh, older statesmen would retire and then join the order. So it became this multinational order. It eventually gets recognized by the Pope, and they are an official army wing of the Roman Catholic Church. It's notable that they are not the only military religious order. Um, there are a few others, and some of them are just as respected and as powerful. But the Templars were also, you know, one of one of the two. There were the um, I'm blanking the name of the second one. There's the hospitalers. Of the hospital. Yeah, the yeah, the hospitalers. hospitalers were the other ones that were very prominent as well. 
So what happened to the Templars? Why did they all go away? So as we progress and the, the Templars get more and more powerful, there tends to, what happens is eventually the Muslim armies will kick out the Western Europeans and they will retake the Crusader states. And then once kicked out, they will never get them again. They will never go back. Every other crusade that follows that will ultimately lead in the failure to reform the Crusader states. So you have these knights who were formed to protect pilgrims on the pilgrimage to the Crusader states, and the Crusader states weren't even there. So now you have this very powerful military order technically responding to the Pope, living under the dominions of kings. And there was a king, King Philip of France, who was a little mm, sus, if to say the word, in the parlance of Gen Z. They was a little sus about the Templars. They didn't really answer to him. His crusade to take the Holy Land failed. He kind of blamed the Templars. And he had this huge problem. Crusading is expensive. Wars are expensive. When you lose the war, they're even more expensive. And here is King Philip sitting around, broke, no crusader states, and there's this massive amount of wealth in these knights all over his domain who technically aren't loyal to him. So what does King Philip do? It was Friday, October 13th, 1307, where the orders go out to arrest every single Templar. So in France, a coordinated one-day order goes out. We might as well call it Order 66, and every single Knights of the Temple that are in the Kingdom of France are all arrested. Then what happens? They get put to torture. And then put to torture, they confess to an international conspiracy, to sodomy, Satanism, all of these terrible things that they were working against Christianity itself, and it spreads out from there, so every knight of the temple gets either renounces, gets arrested, and ultimately gets executed. And in one fatal swoop, King Philip quickly eliminates the knights of the temple, and then what does he try to do? Tries to confiscate all of their wealth into the French kingdom, which he was ultimately unsuccessful because the Catholic Church said, no, that's ours. And so he didn't even get all of the wealth that he was looking for because the Catholic Church held on to a lot of it. And thus, the temples, the Knights of the Templar, are consigned to that area of history and the subject of many, many a story and tale ever since. I want to ask a couple of questions or just have a couple of follow-ups here. That was amazing. Forgive me if you already said this, but central to joining the order of the temple was taking very monk-like vows, right? So we had a vow of poverty. Was there a vow of chastity or Correct. was it just, yeah. Poverty, chastity, and you had to be, you had to swear yourself as a medieval knight for Christ. Yeah, and you basically had to surrender all of your wealth. You couldn't marry. These are things that we definitely see reflected in the Jedi. And then there is this huge contradiction with the fact that the order holds this massive amount of wealth and meanwhile, its actual members are expected to live very ascetic lifestyles, much like the Jedi. 
The other thing I would add is, like the Jedi, after the Order 66, after the Friday the 13th, by the way, that's where the suspicion, or the superstition around Friday the 13th comes from, is this event uh, particularly. After that happens, the legend of the temple doesn't go away. It still grows into this kind of mystical, cult-like phenomenon, much like what happens with the Jedi, who get consigned to legend but are spoken about as if they are these great mythic heroes. And the charges that Philip of France was placing on these members of the Templars because they had taken vows of poverty, chastity, and this you know, crucial dedication to the order, his charges of like sexual devi deviancy and sacrilege and heresy are especially scandalous because they go in opposition to what the Knights of the Temple were supposed to stand for. So there is this concerted effort to turn public opinion against the Templars much like Palpatine has a concerted effort to turn public opinion against the Jedi. One of the central political uh, dilemmas of the medieval era is what authority reigns supreme, secular or spiritual or religious? So who really runs Europe? Or is it the kings or is it the pope? Whose laws really matter? The laws of the church or the laws of the kings or the state? And this conflict... In theory, all of the medieval kings owed their allegiance to the Pope who crowned them as kings and gave them the divine right to rule because the Pope is the embodiment, the closest embodiment to godliness on earth that there can be. The Pope should be the closest to Jesus as that can be in a very literal, not symbolic sense. And so in theory, all authority comes from God to the Pope to the kings and the Pope should reign supreme. However, in practicality, the kings had something to say about that, and by the way, they had a lot. They had the military was loyal to them, their citizens were loyal to them, uh, their country was loyal to them, so the kings didn't always want to bow down to popes and what they said, or to clergymen and what they said. And this conflict of political versus um, theocratic authority is essential to understanding the fall of the temple, the Knights of the Temple, pardon me, because here you have a very powerful military wing of the Catholic Church not aligned to any one king, and a king who goes suspicious of their authority and jealous of their wealth decides he's going to try to take it as an example of saying secular authority trumps spiritual authority. And that conflict exists in particular in the uh, Star Wars prequels. Do I think it's the predominant theme? No, but I do think it's there that who holds the power here? Is it the Senate or is it the Jedi? And as time progresses, the Senate, embodied by its chancellor, supreme chancellor, ends up saying, authority is mine, and that the Jedi Order, we do not answer to you. So this is exemplified in the passage of executive authority by Jar Jar Binks, so that the clone army can be formed. This is embodied again when Palpatine extends his term in office. This is even then further embodied 
um, when Palpatine selects Anakin to be on the Jedi Order. And and lo and behold, there is this secular authority, this non-religious authority that's saying, that's checking the actual power of the Jedi and forming this political wedge saying, we do not owe our allegiance to the Jedi. Now that we have an army, we don't need them to defend us. And their authority, their religious authority, is secondary to our secular authority. And that's the political argument that Palpatine uses. Uh, Grant, not, is this the major theme? No. Um, would I love it if this was the major theme of it? Yes, I would. But is it there? Is it present? Yes. This is ultimately the story of Anakin's downfall and uh, his temptation towards his love being his downfall. That's the prime story here. But that exists and it's in there. And that is a lesson that we can take out and look at from, from both the fall of the Jedi and the fall of the temple, the Knights of the Temple, is to say, hey, where does authority actually come from? Who has the right to wield it? And when they have it, how do we hold them to account for it? Because the Jedi operate pretty much on their own in this in the prequel world. They they answer only to Jedi. They don't take answers. There's a there's a great scene when Padme um, goes to Liam Neeson and says, "Hey, the Queen would not approve." And Liam Neeson goes, "No more orders from the Queen today." He's just shushing her secular authority way. Why? Because I'm a Jedi. He's not even on the Council. You know, he's like, "No, I don't answer to the Queen." That I answer to the force. I answer to this higher spiritual authority. And that is definitely a question that left not firmly answered, left not enshrined in tradition and law that can be manipulated by bad actors like Palpatine or King Philip to then institute programs of oppression and institute, and now. And you could argue, should the custodians of the force even be militarized? Is that even itself okay? Now, granted, if that were the case, these movies would be very dull and be very different, and so they wouldn't be fun. So I'm not saying the Jedi shouldn't have lightsabers in the future, but I'm saying if we're trying to meditate on what this is all about, Jedi shouldn't have lightsabers. Yeah, probably not. Just as... This is the Catholic Church shouldn't have had an army. Yeah, Jedi maybe shouldn't be cops. But then there's also this layer where Obi-Wan says it, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy. There is not just this sense that they answer to the Force, but that they answer to the nebulous kind of apotheosis of what democracy is supposed to be. Not necessarily to this particular Senate, but I am, I am loyal to the idea of democracy. And representative democracy is dismantled in Revenge of the Sith in favor of the First Galactic Empire. So there is this concerted effort by Palpatine to raise his authority to that of what would be considered like the Pope's authority in medieval Europe. So he, he goes from being the Supreme Chancellor overseeing representatives from all the different places in the galaxy to saying, Everyone in the galaxy is mine. I am now above the Jedi. I am now the master of the force. I am now the great puppet master of the galaxy. Well, and think about where we're at right now in contemporary American politics. And this is where there's an interesting parallel because nearly every president 
in my lifetime has tested the boundaries of executive authority to expand it and inch it forward and more forward and more forward so that presidents can act more unilaterally and less without. And, and we've gotten to the point where the Senate and Congress have become more and more dysfunctional, more and more incapable of communicating, compromising, and solving issues where people are now clamoring for more and more authority in the act of the president, so much so there's an ex-president who's going around saying they can't be held guilty of breaking criminal laws. That's going to America's Supreme Court where a president's saying, you can't charge me with a law. I was a president. I can break whatever law I want as a president. That the president is literally not bound by law. I mean, and that is just a one little piece of a domino that's been my entire lifetime. We could even argue since the foundation of the Republic where presidents have been chipping away and gaining more and more authority as they've gone to the point now where there's a ex-president arguing they don't, they can't be prosecuted even if they broke a law. The president could pull out a gun and shoot someone in the face and they could not go to jail for it because they're president. And the Supreme Court might say, yeah, that's how the law works. You know, like we've gotten to a point where we're not that far away because, and we have a really ironclad constitution that outlines authority and where it comes from and how it works. And even in a civilization such as ours, we do stand on the precipice of making the president legally above the law. America is so great. I'm proud of us. So I think we're, we're at the precipice. And by the way, you're still better off being American today than being born any other time in human history. So USA, baby. U -S -A. Okay. USA. So, I will just, I'll take that and my unpaid maternity leave to the bank. Thank you. You do, do need a new job. Yes, and that should be a law. I totally agree. Yeah. You, you need a new job and that should be a law. But that being stated, um, I think the heart of why the Jedi seem to be in this position of creating their own destruction and the rise of, uh, rise of autocracy is that conflict between religious order, military order, and where does power actually come from, and how is it derived? And if it's the will of the force and not the will of the people, where power does come from, there can be inherently in that conflicts can arise from it, and the conditions for autocracy can, be, can, can emerge, and then they can transform into it. And I think that is true for the Knights of the Temple, that's true for the Knights of the Jedi, and that is potentially true of the United States of America. Well said. All right, until next time, be kind. And may the